The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. All right, so just looking at some of the messages that you're sending through, we still have a number of people that are simply not convinced by uh, the position that is being taken, particularly in terms of, you know, this conversation and the need for the third booster shots and how uh, that determination is being arrived at. Uh, somebody saying, Kathy, uh, you know, the doctor did not answer Pastor Dumas' questions. Uh, such answers make... Uh, such answers make the all right i think there's a bit of a typo there but the sentiment that this listener is expressing is that um it it allows questions around the validity or the credibility of the vaccines to remain at least that's that's part of what uh, one listener there is 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 saying another one asking more about the ingredients i think she answered uh, that particular question that information is available online uh, you can just google it and you should be able to find exactly what has uh, gone into what has gone into uh, the the Pfizer vaccine hi Kathy it's David I want to ask this more gatherings occurred by politicians but the number is reportedly going down is this not manipulated because I can tell after the elections the number of COVID-19 numbers will rise again we are fooled here. Uh, that's David's view. Yeah, David, you're not the first person to express that view. Um, I think that when we look at the data, of course, it shows very, very low transmission levels of COVID-19 in the country. Does that have to do with the fact that we do have people that have already been vaccinated, even though we haven't received or haven't reached 50% of the population? I don't know. It's one of the things that uh, they're going to have to keep uh, a close eye on. And yeah, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to interrogate this further once we actually get into December. I see Brian here says the manufacturer should determine the quantity, the necessity of such rather than external body that is not involved in manufacturing because safety is the primary responsibility of the manufacturers. Is that not that's the comment there from Brian on that conversation. So unfortunately, this is where we're going to have to leave it um, with the issue of the Pfizer vaccine. I certainly hope that that conversation has helped answer uh, some of the questions you may have had. Nat Aubrey says, Kathy, since you interviewed a doctor who has all great things to say about the vaccine, I think it will also be fair to invite another doctor who's totally against the vaccine and have concrete evidence. Yeah, well, Nat, the, this interview wasn't about necessarily their opinion. This is uh, from the perspective of the Pfizer head, um, country medical director of Pfizer, speaking about their own vaccines, which I think is uh, maybe different to just somebody giving an opinion. But I hear the point that you're making. You're basically uh, saying there needs to be a lot more diversity of voices when it comes to addressing issues of, of the vaccine. And uh, that point is certainly a point that we take. Our 11 o'clock conversation for today is going to look at the impact of COVID-19 on food systems and particularly food security. Hunger has been uh, one of the biggest issues that that people in the country, that households in the country are having to deal with. Let me invite the guests for this conversation. Dr. Mark Vigoroff is a researcher on food systems and development studies at Pro and program coordinator at the University of Pretoria. Dr. Vigoroff, good morning to you. Hello, Dr. Vigoroff. 
Hello, I hope you can hear me. Yes, How are I you can. Today? I'm well, thank you. I can hear you now. We just had a bit All of right. a delay there. Okay, sorry. Sure. Yeah. Spongile Tele is a farmer in Gauteng and also the leader, uh, a leader rather, in the African Women in Agriculture group. Mam um, Spongile, good morning to you. Good morning, my dear sister, and it's an honor to actually be talking about food in this current challenge where we're having a challenge of food shortage. Mm, mm. Tusi Jackal is a street vendor, uh, also sells fresh produce in the Northern Cape and is an organizer for the South African Informal Traders Alliance. Tusi, good morning to you. A very good morning to you, Tessie, and to SAFM listeners. And thank you for having us. Mm. I think let me begin by giving each of you an opportunity just to explain to us the extent to which, you know, food systems in the country were disrupted by COVID-19 and what that has meant for food security, uh, particularly at the level of households and maybe not necessarily just limited to the food supply that we have generally in in the country. Dr. Vegarif, let me begin with you. I'll just give you about two minutes to to share your reflections. Yeah, thanks very much again for the opportunity. And first you have to understand the the food system looks at the whole organization of food production and distribution and so on and, and, and situates that within its context of the policy environment, the ecological environment, the social environment, and so on. So this, we've been doing a study that's been led by the Institute for Poverty, Land and Agrarian Studies at UWC, also working with the Association for Rural Advancement and the Mass Fundusi Development Trust. And I will just say, summarizing three main stages of the impact we've seen, especially on you know, informal traders, fishers, and farmers. But first of all, there was a hard lockdown that really hit those you know, small-scale producers hard and disproportionately compared to the way it affected the corporate sector. I mean, we know street traders were completely stopped from operating for some weeks in that initial period, but also the other uh, limitations on travel and so on affected fishers and farmers and so on. And then we saw continued limitations after they were allowed to trade, but in the form of permits and unfortunately some sort of harassment by Metro Police and so on that has gone on and again disproportionately affected smaller businesses. Mm. And, and then we see a continuing challenge of the negative impact of this poor state of the economy, where essentially you know, millions of people have lost jobs and income, but food prices have kept going up. And in the, pro- the, the large corporations seem to have been insulated from the negative effects, but the small traders and farmers and fishers who play a key role in ensuring food security for their local communities and livelihoods for themselves have been negatively affected. Mm. And, and thank you so much for, for, for that context, uh, context rather, Dr. Vegarif. Let me give you a chance perhaps to weigh in on this issue. Thank you so much. The issue that we are facing as farmers in the urban space, especially with the lockdowns, because it actually hinders even the, the, the production, because some of the production we had to cut down because of the of the challenge with some of the suppliers cutting down on their request. Mm. Because the people that we supply to usually would say, I'm actually uh, downsizing because now I'm not able to, to, to procure from you especially like our residents, they were closed and we, we were supplying them with herbs. And that caused a challenge for us as farmers because you, you are producing and now your your offtake is actually affected by the fact that they are now faced with locking down their business. And it affects our our production in the sense that even the people that you had 
on board that were helping with the production are actually told to say they need to stay at home since that we're not having enough contracts to cover. And that has actually caused a serious challenge for us as farmers because now the cash flow gets affected and also the food doesn't uh, get, uh, get a chance to reach other people and then the prices become too, too, too expensive for people because of shortage of supply. So COVID-19 has actually affected us as farmers because mm. now there's more uh, 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 demand, but the supply is not as much to meet the demand. Mm, mm. Uh, Tusi, let me come to you and give you a chance also just to uh, give some context, at least from your view, before we continue with this conversation. Thank you, Katie. Um, I must say that uh, a lockdown, the hard lockdown, has affected the traders very, very badly to the extent that uh, when the lockdown started, uh, many of us, we still had our stock and uh, we could not sell uh, in any way. So what happened to the stock, the stock gets spoiled. As you know, the perishable goods, the fresh mm. produce, they get spoiled. And then uh, later on in uh, May, uh, government gazette came out that the informal traders, uh, especially for fruit and veg, may come back. And then thereafter, we were issued with special permits that is valid for the for the duration of the um, uh, 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 of the lockdown. Uh, but we we could not really sell in town as we as we really do. So we had to start selling from our places of residence whereby business was very, very weak. And mind you, many people have lost their jobs. Many people did not have money. But eventually we were allowed back into the CBD to go back and trade. But I must say that business has never been the same uh, uh, up until now whereby now government came with uh, the program of TRAP, uh, Township and Rural Entrepreneur uh, 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 Program, whereby uh, in the fruit and veg, uh, we were each to receive 1,000 rand uh, to purchase stock. Mm. But the the problem with uh, qualification of that was the trading permits because the special permits were not accepted and many many people did not receive the special permits so yeah we we were affected we were affected very 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 much mm-hmm. you know these all speak to the different elements dr vigraf that feed into a food supply at various levels and spheres of our society Ultimately, when you have had such a wild, wide-scale disruption on those food supply systems, what, is, what does it ultimately mean for the ability of households to be able to secure food? I think one of the important things to understand is that even pre-COVID, we had a crisis of food insecurity in South Africa, along mm. with the crisis of poverty, unemployment, and inequality. So what we've seen COVID doing is exacerbating those 
um, sort of challenges that the society was already facing. So if we, if we look, we, we were making progress in South Africa in reducing the number of people who were food insecure. But since 2007, we've, we've essentially, the progress has stopped. So for the last 14 years, even pre-COVID, we were still seeing consistently high levels of hunger and no, pro, no sustained progress in addressing that. So even before COVID, we were sitting in a situation where about 45% of South Africans were at least moderately or severely food insecure. And about 6.5% were suffering real hunger under mm. malnourishment, undernourishment. You know? And that 6.5% was up from about 3% 10 years ago. So, you know, things were getting worse pre-COVID. Now, COVID is exacerbating all of that, uh, especially because of the job losses and so on. We know that about 3 million people lost jobs in the first months of COVID lockdowns. And it's very important to note that that is the poorer black people, South Africans, uh, who were losing the job. It's those already at the lower end in the more insecure jobs who lost out. Now, we've had some certain amount of recovery since then in jobs. But even at the, you know, according to the latest uh, Labour Force survey up to the end of June 2021, we're still sitting at over 1.4 million less jobs than we had before COVID, mm. less incomes. And, so, and as I mentioned, so that's got to be hitting the ability of people to buy basic foods. And at the same time, we've seen every month since March last year, Every month, the food price has gone up more quickly than the core inflation. Mm. And that becomes very important, for poor, especially for poorer families, because they are spending a larger amount of their income on food. And also we see that you know, grants and, and wage negotiations and so on over the years are pegged often to core inflation. But if food inflation is considerably higher, and we're talking some months, you know, 60% higher and so on. So core inflation, say, in August was 4.9%, but the food inflation was 7.4%. It's considerably higher, and that adds up every month, as I say, since, since March, hitting the poor hardest. So we don't yet have the, you know, new statistics showing food insecurity, but it's very clear that the, the situation is getting bad. People experience that directly in the you know, India, and we can see that. And we, and we fully expect that we'll see higher rates of child stunting and other indicators of, of mm. serious food insecurity going forward. And again, I want to come back to why we focus on like your small farmers, your artisanal fishers and so on, and street traders. Because they both, from the study we've been doing, they make food more accessible, especially fresh produce and most of the street traders you know, sell its prices considerably below the supermarket prices, and they sell in locations close to where people are. So they make that food more accessible. So when they've been taken out, like with the lockdown, that affected them, but it also affected access to food for many people. And of course, then, you know, the food system must deliver food and make it accessible, but also it must deliver livelihoods for people in our context of inequality and unemployment and so on. So there's estimated to be about three quarters of a million, 750,000 street traders in the country, the largest number of those selling food. There's about 80,000 artisanal fishers and so on. So this is a significant number of people who are creating livelihoods for themselves and making food available. Um, with the negative impact on them, we will definitely see increased levels of food insecurity. Mm. Spongile, oftentimes when, when we hear statements like Dr. Mark was saying, talking about the fact that there are people in this country who are food insecure, it it sometimes doesn't make sense because we don't seem to have a shortage of a supply of food. And we know that there are millions of rand worth of food that also go to waste in this in this country. 
Yes, I, I agree with you. There's so much wastage, and that's why we actually now, as farmers, have come together, especially uh, emerging farmers, to say, how do we deal with wastage that is taking place? Because what is happening with, with the value chain? We produce as farmers, then we get offtakes from, from retailers. But now retailers, when they cannot sell at a high price, that food goes into waste. And they're saying, let's look at the pricing that is taking place and shortening the food miles. Because if a farmer is produced, let the food reach the table of the person that needs food be at an affordable price so that they're able to, to sustain their families as well. And and also on waste stage, where prices are, are, are too high for people to afford with the current situation where there's so much unemployment. We are, we are even encouraging households to say, where the, the 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 seriousness of even being able to to buy food, let's let's go back and do food gardens in communities. So that's where uh, we came in as African Women in Agriculture, where we go and partner with with communities mm. and get young ladies that are, are, are unemployed. We train them on how to do farming using hydroponics and also doing organic. And then we say go back to your communities and start community gardens so that there's food access. To communities, and we diversify the type of foods that they have to eat because we are not limiting it to just potatoes, uh, spinach, and cabbage. We say look at other indigenous foods that we've been eating before, so that we diversify the food so that people have enough food in their households. I always make an example of beans. This is a high-protein food. You don't have to have meat when you've got beans. Mm. So we also encourage them to say go back, plant the beans. Let, let people have eat beans as part of their food and also have vegetables. And this is all done in food gardens where they, they come from in the township. We'll continue and our conversation. Informal traders to say, can we change mm. the, the food supply? Go back to indigenous food that we also have access of, of indigenous, which are not so expensive mm. for all us right. to grow and actually use. All right, I'm going to pause you there. I'll give you a chance also to continue. We'll be uh, going on with this conversation, looking at the impact of COVID-19 on food systems and food security. For now, it's 11.30 and Musa has your latest news. The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Of course, coming up at noon is the update at noon with Sakina Kamwendo, and they'll have an update on uh, some of the big stories that have been unfolding throughout the day. We continue the conversation on the impact of COVID-19 on food systems and food security. Uh, so, Mams uh, Bongile, you were still telling us about the need to be able to go back into communities and... Mm support initiatives and help them when it comes to their own food production. What what do you think has happened in communities that we are simply unable uh, to grow food for ourselves and to, to provide food for ourselves in that way? I think, I think with, the, with the migration, most of the people that we have forgotten that when we grew up, each household had a tree and there were veggie gardens. And we're saying let's restore that back because it was also assisting a household that needs just to have food to, to sustain the family. So we are reverting back to basics to say, can we start there? To say, have just basic food that you eat daily, mm-hmm. in that we have this situation currently where there's a high unemployment rate. 
So get a young ones to participate in growing the food garden. And you just leave five vegetables that you like, five herbs that you like, you plant them, and you have food on the table on a daily basis. Mm. This, is, this is what was being done by, by, by our parents growing up. I grew up in Orlando. My grandmother had fruit trees, she had vegetable gardens, and we were grandchildren we were about 15, and no one went to bed hungry. Mm. And we are now saying, let's go back to basics and do that. Where you have a concrete slab, put in a tire, grow your vegetables. And, and this is the drive that we've been giving to the young ladies to say, go back, here's the seeds, because I've started a seed bank as well called the Seed Bank, where we are collecting indigenous seeds and saying, go back and, and plant, and we donate to them these seeds to say, go back and plant. And we've started giving boxes, which we call Farm in a Box, which we donate to schools to say, kids must go back home and, and plant, and we show them how on, on those Farm in the Box on how to do it at home. Mm. And it becomes a participation of everyone, and the collaboration goes on. And with the collaboration, we're also collaborating with, with informal traders to say, Let's look at the pricing because it's, it's actually a challenge. But by the time the food gets to the table, it's expensive. So if I produce at a reasonable price as a farmer, let me give it to the next aggregator, which is an informal uh, trader that will now put a markup that is quite reasonable when it reaches now the end user, which is, is, is the household that will be buying those vegetables. Mm. So we're working yeah. in collaboration with other aggregators who are informal traders. Mr. Jekyll, let me let me come to you. And you've spoken about the difficulties that as street vendors you faced under the lockdown and not also getting some of the promised monies to help support and rebuy the cap to help rebuy some of the goods, of course, some of which uh, may have gone uh, gone bad while the lockdown restrictions were in place. What has the process of trying to rebuild some of these businesses been like for uh, the members of your alliance? Yes, Kathy. I, I, I fully agree uh, with the uh, uh, perspective from the, from, from the farmer encouraging communities to start uh, food gardens. So uh, we, we, we have grouped ourselves, uh, about eight, eight of us, of which two are men and uh, six are women and uh, four of the women are youth and they registered a cooperative with the idea to utilize the land in the schoolyards because if you can look at the schoolyards they've got big land and there's water readily available so we got assisted by the Department of Economic Development in the Northern Cape to register a cooperative in July. But however, the challenge still, because we have not received our certificate yet so that we can start uh, uh, working, the challenge is the system. We have not a system from the Department of uh, Economic Development because we, don't, we did not have our, our certificate as yet. So it is, it is very important that we must try and do something differently because this is the new normal. And uh, uh, as, as the farmer is saying, indeed we experience the shortage of food in our uh, fresh produce market whereby it, it, it's very expensive. And uh, previously 
the street traders, we were much cheaper than your chain stores, your pick and page, your mm. pricing, so on. But now we find ourselves more expensive than the uh, uh, than the, 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 the your, your chain stores. And because people now have to tighten their belts, they need to buy wisely. People are gradually opting to go and purchase from the uh, supermarkets and so on. And as as you know, uh, as we know, Kathy, now that many people have lost their jobs, some of them and their dependents have now joined the Mm -hmm. informal sector whereby now the slice of the cake is becoming thinner and thinner because now we have to share. We have no choice because we all have to survive. Uh, 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 But I must say that the government is trying its utmost best to come and assist us. But there's a problem of a discord between the three spheres of government, Mm. whereby the national government will come with a plan as to how to assist the traders. Now, in order for this plan to be executed, it has to be executed at local government level, and that is where we find the problem. The execution and the implementation of these policies becomes nothing because, uh, you know, we always talk about Uh, emphasis on Section 41 of the Constitution of the Republic of South Africa that speaks of principles of cooperative governments and intergovernmental relations, whereby if the governments can stick to this Section 41, then we will not have, uh, we will not uh, uh, experience much of this discord uh, as to when it comes to the implementation of policies. So, so, uh, do, do you believe that if how the restrictions around COVID-19 were implemented, if they had taken into account the fact that vendors should be viewed in the same way that a spaza shop is, in the same way that a big retailer is, and should not be affected by the lockdown restrictions, do you believe that the industry would be at a better place? Absolutely. Absolutely, Katie. Uh, And when it comes to starting food gardens, I think uh, uh, the Department of Agriculture, Economic Development and the municipality must come together to encourage uh, uh, people to do that and to give support in terms of training and, and everything that uh, uh, pertains to the, to the, to the, to the uh, food, uh, food, food production. Uh, uh, and when it comes to funding, uh, again, that one takes us back to implement, implementation of, 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 of programs by national government. Uh, you know, things like we as SAITA, South African Informal Traders Alliance, we started complaining as to how does the municipalities expect the informal traders to continue paying for trading permits mm. whereas the income is less. Uh, 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 now, eventually, on the 12th of uh, July this year, a government gazette was signed by the then uh, Minister of Small Business Development, Mem, uh, Kumbuzo Nchaveni, 
uh, speaking about the waiver of trading permits and the business licenses. Unfortunately, Katie, uh, still now, the municipalities are forcing the traders to pay, and they disregard this uh, uh, government gazette. For instance, on the 14th of September, I received a call from our members in Uppington complaining that the municipality have confiscated the goods of the traders and mm-hmm. issued them fines of 750 each. And I asked them, I, 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 I shared with you the government gazette on the waiver of trading permits. It didn't show the municipality, and they said, no, the municipality said it's got nothing to do with those uh, 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 government gazette. They are doing their job. And I wrote a letter to the director at the Small Business Development, Mr. Stephen Umlo, complaining about this. And uh, Mr. Umlo responded that he has communicated the problem to the district municipality in Uppington, but up to now, we have not heard anything. Uh, well, in our municipalities or plaguey municipality, I introduced this uh, government gazette to them because they were not aware of it. So they say they are still working on it, but there's nothing mm. to think about it because it is a government gazette, it is a directive, it needs to be implemented uh, 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 with immediate effect. Yeah, you you, you know, uh, Doctor Vekerov, part of what is being said by Mams um, Bongile and and Mr. Tusi is the fact that due to this, if I can call it misalignment, when it comes to the implementation of government policy, ultimately we have a situation where those who are street vendors continue to be squeezed out of the system. But that also means that the constituency that they serve, so their clients, are now also not able to access the produce that they would generally access from them at affordable rates. And and that's that's contributing to the problem. Indeed, and I mean, it seems to show a situation where the you know the role of street traders, the role of your small fishers and farmers, is really not properly understood or recognised by mm-hmm. the government. When they engage, it seems to be more the sort of harassment that Tusi has given us some examples of, which is very unfortunate. You know, and and I think for us, it's, you know, looking forward, you know, I really appreciate Sibon Gillian and Tusi have tried to be positive about what could be done as well. But we need to remember. I mean, I think for both of them also had to retrench employees. They've also lost money and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, so the situation has been difficult. Um, but what I would argue for going forward that we need to be looking at, and a lot of this incidentally does relate to local government with our elections coming up, you know, is that we need to deconcentrate and decentralize the food system. And in doing so, I would say we must build on the initiatives of people like Sibongili and Tusi and the hundreds of thousands like them. We need to affirm this right of a place to trade for people, especially when there are so few jobs available for people. We need mm-hmm. that right to land for those who produce. You know, in our work with black farmers, we found many of them, even when they're producing and selling to the market, they're struggling to get land that they have secure rights to. And we need better supported municipal markets. We have these municipal markets that play a key role, but unfortunately many of them are being undermined. And I think the experience in Kimberley that Tusi is going through is where a municipal market is not functioning as it could. Where they do function well, we see that selling the municipal market, selling to street traders, 
and through the small enterprises is making food more accessible and cheaper. So we need more public market spaces closer to where people live, mm. both for fresh produce, also for fish. And when we talk about fish, the infrastructure like refrigeration, storage and packing becomes essential mm. because the big companies have that. So they can buy up cheap when it's cheap, but the small fishers have to sell immediately because they don't have that kind of infrastructure. <coughs> and a similar thing happens in the vegetable trade and so on. And we need regulatory planning and space for treat free traders. They tend to be ignored in our spatial plans, and they need to be central in them because of the role they play. We can use government procurement better for the prisons and schools to support your small producers, farmers, and fishers. You know, and at the end of the day, I would say that you know, COVID has reinforced some of these inequalities and challenges in our society, and we have to take it as a moment where we are in a crisis and we need substantial change. COVID has given us the reason and the evidence to show we need substantial changes. Um, so I hope we can see those sort of changes going forward. All right. Well, let me thank all my guests for being part of this conversation. Dr. Mark Vegarov, who is a researcher on food systems and development studies at the University of Pretoria's Bongile Tele, is a farmer and also one of the leaders of the African Women in Agriculture group, and Tusi Jackal, who's a street vendor in the northern Cape, an organizer for the South African Informal Traders Alliance. I certainly hope that that provides some kind of uh, context for what has been happening to food systems and why um, we have these civil society organizations who are warning about the hunger problem in this country. So that is part of where the hunger that households are facing is coming from. And we now have to look at how do we ensure that should we need to have situations like the pandemic where restrictions are implemented, whatever the case might be, how do we ensure that small-scale businesses, that street vendors, are not affected in the way that they have this time around? Because it really speaks to our understanding of the kind of country that we live in. And it it was um, uh, Mr. Jackal there who said that he actually doesn't believe that there's a clear understanding from government about how they as street vendors are affected by policy that's made at the top at a national level and how that is implemented at the very local level where you have some officials not even being aware of what the policy is. We're going to pause it there for that conversation and we'll continue. We'll wrap it up. We'll wrap uh, today's program uh, speaking to the ESCOM Development Foundation.